Army Command Sergeant Major John Wayne Troxell served as the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs and the, the senior non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Armed Forces from December 11, 2015 until his retirement on December 13, 2019. In this role, he served as the principal military advisor to the chairman and the secretary of defense on all matters involving joint and combined total force integration, utilization, health of the force, and joint development for enlisted personnel. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. What is uh, what is the SEAC? And then we can kind of get into how you got there. Uh, because I, I'll tell you, just to, to be honest with you, um, I met the SEAC whenever we were deployed to Poland, and I was like, a what? Like, <laughs> I had never heard that before, so uh, go ahead. Yeah, the SEAC is the Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It, was a posi- it, is, it is a position that was created in 2005 uh, by then Chairman General Pete Pace Marine. When he realized he was the only leader, officer leader, that did not have a senior enlisted advisor. And he happened to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, the, the chief of staff of the Army has the sergeant major of the Army. The commandant of the Marine Corps has the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. But he was the only guy that didn't have anybody. So he created this position to, for the SEAC, as the acronym is pronounced, to be an advisor to him and the Secretary of Defense on all matters involving the troops. And so the first SEAC was Army Command Sergeant Major Joe Ganey from 2005 to 2008. Now, Admiral Mullen came in as the chairman, different culture uh, with the Navy, and he decided we didn't need a SEAC. So it was the position was vacant from eight to 11. General Dempsey came in, Army General Dempsey to be the chairman. He re- reinstituted the position and he hired uh, Marine Sergeant Major Brian Battaglia and Battaglia was the SEAC from 11 to 15. And then Marine General Joe Dunford selected me, and I replaced Battaglia in December of 2015 and served until December of 2019. What I tried to do as the SEAC was deliver the why to the troops uh, all around the world on the national defense and national military strategies and why they were serving in such garden spots like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, all those places that you want to take your family to for vacation, you know, right. that, that you've spent some time at. But uh, and then but also to get the pulse of the force and deliver that to the chairman, the SECDEF and the presidential administration. The difference between the SEAC and, for instance, the sergeant major of the army. The sergeant major of the army has title 10 authority. Well, the chief of staff of the Army has Title 10 authority, but the Sergeant Major of the Army can do uniform policy, stuff like that for the Army, as well as the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force can do that for the Air Force and the like. Uh, as the SEAC, you don't have any authority. Uh, the chairman provides best military advice to the SECDEF and the president and is not in the chain of command. And as the SEAC, you're not in the chain of command. So you have to figure out where you can make an impact. And when I took the job, General Dempsey told me my number one priority has to be given this job irreversible momentum. 
so that a chairman will will not come along again and say, I don't need a SEAC. And then with General Dunford, it was, hey, I'm not going to tell you whether you're doing a good job or not. The troops will tell me if they know who you are and what you're all about. And so that's what I set out to be, um, because as the SEAC, you are in the art of influence and leadership. There is no science to what you're doing because you have no policy or doctrine behind you. You are out there. And don't get me wrong. The SEAC does have uh, a DOD, you know, reg on how you operate and everything, but it's pretty vague. And so you have to be dynamic. You have to be authentic and you have to be out where the troops are so that they know exactly what the SEAC is and what he does. Right. I think you nailed the uh, the dynamic part <laughs> for sure. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, when you try to get irreversible momentum, then you you've got to be dynamic in what you're doing. And you know, one thing I learned through a 38 year career was that the troops need to be inspired, they need to be motivated, they need purpose, and they need direction. And too many times when leaders get on in years and get into positions, they don't think that they have to do that. And so I focused on my presence, you know, being at the points of friction, but more importantly, firing people up when I got there, um, my performance. I, I did everything, you know, throughout my career that I expected troops to do. And then through persistence to get out, get to the places, you know, that the troops were at, you know, <laughs> it was hard as heck to get to places like Aden, Yemen, you know, you know, especially when Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the Houthi rebels, you know, the proxy for the Iranians were just out there, you know, committing terrorist attacks and everything. But I knew that in order to have credibility with the troops, in order to get the face-to-face -face pulse for the chairman and sector, I needed to be at places like that. And that's why uh, I spent 270 days a year on the road to right. do just that. Yeah, no, um, uh I'll, I'll say that, that for uh, the, the being a, a like an effective chaplain, it's the mm -hmm. same game. It's like you, yeah. you you can't be in your office. You've got to be wherever wherever the the friction is the highest, or else they'll see right through you, and you you'll have no idea what's actually going on. So it's it's interesting to see the same kind of uh, dynamic on your side of the table, and especially at that level, that it's it's still that um, that important. Um, yeah. So I think. Being a sergeant major and being a chaplain, there are parallels. And so during the surge in Iraq, when I was a brigade CSM, I took my chaplain out with me on every opportunity to do battlefield circulation. And, uh, you know, he was a battle, you know, the chaplain is a battlefield enabler and not just someone that shows up to make people feel good and everything. They have an important role in advising the commander on the readiness morale and of the troops and everything so i absolutely agree with you right so um so how, how did you end up in that office like you just kind of like so uh just for clarity like you were actually my sergeant major way back when uh, our last conversation was not as pleasant uh, um like <laughs> i <laughs> i was a road guard whenever i was like 19 at drum in the middle of a blizzard and i was like stippled up had my uh, my headphones in i was listening to freebird and next thing you know like this this car just blows past me and i was just like well i'm glad she didn't hit me and the next thing you know there you are be like what's your function here and i was like ah, i don't know <laughs> so that was a long time ago um, so uh yeah go ahead go ahead <laughs> So, you know, um, obviously, you know, as a senior enlisted leader, but especially in the Army, 
you know, you, you go, you're a battalion level command sergeant major, which I was at the time at drum mm -hmm. when, uh, you know, you got a little bit of scunion, you know, um, then, you, you know, you go to brigade and then you go up through the NOM ranks. And, you know, I never throughout my career did I say I want to be the SEAC or I want to be a NOM level guy. I just live by the attitude of I'm going to lead through my example. I'm going to be the best product of leadership I can be, the best uh, enlisted advisor to my commander. And, you know, I just continue to want to serve. And so, you know, when I got up through the nominative ranks, I became a core level sergeant major at First Corps and JBLM. And then I went on to U.S. Forces Korea at the four-star level. And I competed twice for the sergeant major of the Army. My second time, I made it to the uh, the final three, but was not selected. Dan Daly was selected. Um, and I thought I was going to be retiring. But then I was reached out to by the current SEAC, Brian Battaglia, and he said, hey, I want you to compete. And I didn't think I would have a chance because I wasn't a service senior enlisted guy and I wasn't a combatant command senior enlisted guy. But uh, I, I did the interview with General Dunford and two weeks later, he called me up and said, hey, I want you to come here and, and be my SEAC and, uh, you know, and, and let's get after this. So um, I, I never thought I would go. But the bottom line is, it was a commitment to excelling, a commitment to being in a band of excellence in leadership and being a leadership product that could influence the men and women under me. Because when I was on the SEAC slate and General Dunford had come to Korea and interviewed me, and then he was out visiting troops everywhere he went, there were soldiers, there were airmen, there were Marines saying, hey, Troxel's the guy you need to select. You know, we serve with him here and everything. And so... I think as a, a leader, it's not so much what you say or, you know, your actions speak louder than your words, but it's what those around say about you. And, uh, and I think that in the end is what got me selected because Dunford realized that I had a lot of influence with the troops. And so I didn't take that lightly when he hired me. I knew that every day when he said, hey, the troops will tell me whether you're doing a good job or not, that I had to perform every day, whether it was abroad, in the Pentagon, before Congress or wherever it was at, I had to be a representation for all 3 million active guard and reserve military members. Right. Yeah. So um, if you were to, uh, you know, this is a podcast for, for our soldiers, like if you were to talk to, you know, your, your junior enlisted now that are, that are kind of coming up through the ranks, what would you tell them uh, to help prepare them and help enable them to uh, to have that level of influence wherever whatever level that they may be at um, what, what would you say to them um, first and foremost we live in a very hypersensitive world right now and uh, we've created an environment and I'm not saying this exists across the military but at least in our country there are people that can find an insult in the gift of a bouquet of roses or you know a slight inflection of a leader's voice can you know oh they're toxic you know you know, or they see toxic people under their bed at night when they would get ready to go to sleep. What I recommend to young troops is be a champion, not a victim. If there's something wrong, something that you don't like, or something that you believe is unfair, have the intestinal fortitude to approach your leaders and say, why are we doing this? And I have a question, okay, about this. And, and, and I have a recommendation on how we could do this better. Too many times, um, 
young troops, young NCOs, young officers get frustrated with a situation they get in and they don't they don't have an intestinal fortitude to bring it up as an issue for fear of retribution. So uh, they immediately go to an agency like the inspector general or something like that. You know, I go back to you as a chaplain. You know, if there's challenges in there, we have put these enablers within the organization, like the chaplain, that troops can go and talk to and everything. I just remember when I was a young troop in the early 1980s, completely different army, the methods used to modify my behavior to, to be consistent with military service are methods that would uh, get people put in jail today. But I realized at an early age that there's two things. The one thing I could control is my reaction to everything that was happening to me. And if I was, you know, being chewed out and I thought it was wrong, I was going to be above this by not, you know, sinking to the level of this leader that was being unprofessional with me. And so I wanted to be a champion throughout my career. I didn't want to be labeled a victim and I didn't want to have to, you know, and, and I've had some adversity in my career and I'm sure we'll probably talk about it. But I, you know, I've, I've been suspended as the Sea Act under investigation. I was under investigation as a first sergeant in the 82nd. But through all of that, I was not going to be a victim. I was going to be a champion. And if I felt something was wrong, I was going to champion a method to get after the, to make it right. Or I was going to come with a championship attitude every day of being the best soldier I could be so that I could continue to excel. And you know something, chaps, this hit me when I was a private. So I had nothing but individual responsibility. So all I had to do was be a good soldier every day. But I met my wife when, uh, and this year we'll celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary, but I met her when I was an E1. And we got married when I was an E3. And then shortly after, we were expecting our first child. And it hit me then, now I have family responsibilities. Now the military has become that much more important to me because I don't have any other skills than to be a soldier. And I need to be the best soldier I can be to put more food on the table for my, my wife and my about to be born son and everything like that. So that even propelled me more to strive for excellence in everything I could do because the more uh, I was a better soldier and a better asset in the organization, the faster the promotions would come and the better I could take care of my family. And so my message to young troops now is, the Army's new motto is be all you can be. And I will tell you throughout my career, if I wanted to be a paratrooper, all I had to do was this. If I wanted to be a jump master, a ranger, get a college degree, all I had to do was raise my hand, put in the work, the personal discipline to get it done, and it happened for me. And too many times I see troops, one, that are afraid to fail, you know, because uh, if I don't do it, then I can't fail, you know. But two, they want to be victim to circumstances instead of champion, championing their way out of it or being a champion every day that they come in. And the more you are on that positivity side, uh, instead of the negativity, you're going to have a better career. You're going to have better opportunities. And if you're married, you're going to have a better family life. Right. No, that's, that's super uh, smart uh, to hear. Uh, so like, so you met your wife uh, when you were just like, one year in? Oh, I wasn't even, so I joined the Army in September of 82. I graduated basic and AIT in December of 82. 
Right. I reported to Fort Bliss, Texas on 5 January 83. I met my wife on the 1st of February 83. So I had only been in the Army five months. That was a busy year. Yeah. And then we got married when I had a year in and I was a PFC then. So, yeah, I was just a young Jughead private doing what Jughead (laughs) privates do, going out to a club and, you know, wanting to drink and meet girls and everything. And and I met one and it so happened that I fell in love with this girl and and uh, we're 40 years strong this year. So, yeah, that was uh, yeah, that that hit me in a hurry. So I didn't have a lot of time of, you know, just being a single troop and everything because I had a steady girlfriend there and then we got married and we had our first child and and that propelled me uh, to have a more of an impact with my career so I could take care of my family better. Right. So um, I, I told myself I'd try to avoid asking you a whole lot of chaplain questions, but I am really curious uh, because like, uh, so I've been chaplain for, for a while and I've seen a lot of marriages just uh, like start and then deteriorate. So what's the secret? Because like, like you're not a, a guy who sat in a cubicle for 40 years. Whatever. You were gone and running around and doing everything that the Army did over the past however long. So like, what what's the secret to uh, to having a lasting marriage in, uh, in the military environment? Uh, it's okay to be wrong. Okay. All right. You know, and, and you don't have to win every argument. And I think between Sandra, my wife and I, we've constantly communicated uh, on what's best for our family. And don't get me wrong, I was still a young, you know, combat troop, airborne ranger, you know, kind of a hellion and everything. Um, but she kind of harnessed that a little bit for me. But um, the more you commit to each other, the more you build trust between each other, and the more you love each other, and especially as you grow a family like we did, raising three sons, the commitment to be there for each other goes up. And uh, when this really paid off for me is in December of 1989, when I went to work, you know, as a paratrooper in the 82nd, I'm on Division Ready Force 1, and I get to work and we've been alerted. Now, we were a peacetime military and we thought this was some exercise we were going to do during the half-day schedule. So we were belly aching, like, why would we be doing this exercise during a half-day schedule? Well, it turns out um, there were problems in Panama. Manuel Noriega lost the election and did not concede that he was going to leave. There were American families and service members that were being harassed. And and matter of fact, one lieutenant was actually killed by Panamanian Defense Forces. And next thing I know, I was parachuting into combat. And I know, you know, back then there's no cell phones, there's no email, the phone lines were cut so that uh, for security reasons. So I, I, well, my wife will figure out sooner or later that I'm not coming home and, uh, you know, that I'm fighting in combat and she'll probably learn on TV, which she did. And it was about five days. It was Christmas day when I finally was able to write a letter to her and I did it on an MRE box and we still have it today. And, uh, telling her I was okay and sorry I had to leave under the conditions. But then the day after, I finally, I snuck into a Marriott hotel, got on a pay phone, called her collect, and that was our first phone call. And it, that was very emotional. And then when I got back um, and we redeployed, um, listening to the other spouses talk about how strong Sandra was, my wife was, in terms of helping them deal with the potential, you know, loss of their spouse and everything. And I think it was from her upbringing. She's a first generation Mexican-American. Her father was from Mexico. Her mother was from Texas. 
and they raised 19 children and they were, they lived in poverty. And so they, she had a rough life growing up and she really had to deal with some adversity. And I think um, that propelled her um, to be a better military spouse and understand that you have to deal with the sacrifice that your service members do, that your spouse does, and that uh, things aren't always going to be perfect and everything, and you've got to make the best of it. And I was so proud of her when I got back. And, you know, seven months later, I was off to Desert Shield and Desert Storm. <clears throat> and again, she was a powerful spouse for that. And so I think the more, the message is, the more the service member has their spouse be a part of their journey by being members of family readiness groups, of uh, being a part of steering committees and all those things, when bad things happen uh, and they know that the bad things are going on, they will be a much better asset to the organization and the institution overall. The more we isolate military families from what happens with the service member, and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that we violate any operation security stuff or anything, but the more they are involved in what their service member does, the better they're off they're going to be and the better off the organization is going to be. Right, right. That's solid advice. So you joined in 1982? Yes, 1982s. So can, can you just speak to like how how the army has changed, you know, because it's 2023 and that's, you know, that's a long time ago. So like what, what was it like in 1982 and what, you know, and how did it progress? So <clears throat> the vast majority of my drill sergeants were Vietnam veterans. Um, and uh, one in particular was a Sergeant First Class uh, African-American gentleman named Ron Batiste, uh, multiple tours in Vietnam, but he was this big booming figure um, with an aura about him that was all about charisma. And, you know, he intimidated me, you know, he, you know, again, I'm a trainee, but more so than any of the other drill sergeants, this guy was had just intimidating look. And I had done something wrong one day and he was in my face, you know, with the, with the, you know, campaign hat on almost touching my forehead. And he was just undressing me in a verbally fashion. And what was going through my mind then was I am going to do whatever is necessary to make sure that this man never has to yell at me like that again. And I was focused on being the best soldier that I could be. So I didn't end up like that again. It had a lasting impact on me. I think as the military has transitioned and we've done a lot of great things over the years to get better in terms of um, building our non-commissioned officer corps to where it is now that it is our most you know, competitive uh, advantage against any threat right now, that mid-level management. Um, we've done a lot of things in building diversity and equity and everything. But I look at the military of today and, and not to be critical, but I just wonder if there's an NCO that gets in the face of a young troop today, like Ron Batiste got in my face in 1982, is that attitude of that troop, I'm going to do whatever's necessary to make sure that this man doesn't have to uh, chew me out like this again? Or is it, I'm going to go see whoever I need to see and leverage that agency to prevent this NCO from ever talking to me like that again. My concern is, do we have an imbalance in today's military where we are over empathetic and under accountable? And uh, I just think 
um, in order to be best effective now, leaders have to balance three things, empathy, accountability, and clarity. And if you balance that, it will equal to efficiency and how the organization performs and how the soldiers that they're responsible for performs. So uh, don't get me wrong. We always want to improve quality of life. We always want to make life better for our men and women in uniform. But we have to, we can never forget why the military exists. And Ron Batiste was talking to me that way because he had served in Vietnam three times and he had seen what the carnage, brutality, and unforgiveness of war can do to a soldier that is not best prepared to face the conditions they could encounter on the worst day of their life. And I think that transcends any change. So today we can't forget, especially with what's going on in Eastern Europe and uh, with the malign influence of the communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and then with North Korea and Iran and the, can't forget about terrorism. In the end, we can't forget why the military exists. We fight and win our nation's war and we defend our freedom, our homeland and our way of life. And in order to, to be best prepared to do that, uh, it's not going to all be beer and Skittles, chaplain. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. it's gonna, it, there's going to be some adversity. There's going to be some time that a leader won't have the, the, the time and space to explain everything. And they just need you to move out and execute. And we we can't have hypersensitive people that the the first inflection of a voice and their feelings get hurt. And they're either going to the IG or they're coming to see you saying that, you know, Staff Sergeant Troxel is a bully because he didn't explain to me things that we needed to do on this live fire range. And he just told me to, excuse my language, haul ass, you know. So um, <laughs> if I see any difference, it's because we are trying to get do things better in terms of how we take care of troops, how we house them and all those other things that that can easily get misconstrued where it's this people first focus it can easily get misconstrued to me first. And all of a sudden, selfless service, being a champion and everything gets pushed aside and it's now what's in it for me. And I think we have to harness that and it has to be harnessed at the tactical level because that's certainly not the message that is being sent from the strategic and operational levels. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. So what was it like uh, coming up underneath a lot of those uh, Vietnam era vets? Because, I mean, it's we've kind of come full circle that we, we, we've we ended the GWAT. We're, we're into this whole, whole new era. It seems like it's it's very much the Army today is very much like the Army that you came into. And it seems yeah. like there, there should be some uh, like lessons learned from those guys that we could pass on to people now. Well, I certainly hope so. My concern is um, – that we're looking at the future of conflict that is going to be all domain and, uh, you know, is going to include space and cyber and potentially nuclear and everything. And we're getting after, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence, and a lot of these other things, but we cannot forget that, that combat in itself is a battle of wills between opposing sides. And the more physically, mentally, and emotionally men and women are prepared, the better off they're going to be. And so when I was, uh, you know, a young troop, those Vietnam era NCOs, everything they were teaching me was through the lens of combat. And now those that hadn't been to combat um, that were focused on what they were receiving in training and everything in terms of 
um, you know, the Cold War with the Soviet Union and everything, um, they were pushing back against these Vietnam veterans, you know. And me as a young troop, I was like, I want to I want to learn from this NCO that has fought in battle and has the scars of combat, both physical uh, and mental. But I also want to, you know, understand how we're going to fight now and everything. And my concern now is that we don't do enough talking about lessons learned from 20 years of fighting counterinsurgency in, at the unit level um, on how fire team squads, platoons, and all that operate, how we did logistics and all this other stuff. Um, and now we're so focused on this integrated deterrence that gets after through our collective uh, focus with NATO and, and other partner nations and it's in our interoperability and things like that, that we're not talking enough about being ready to fight and win. And that's the bottom line. And so uh, we can't, and I, even me, a guy that has been retired for three years, um, that uh, served for 38 and served at the senior list of position of the DOD, there are leaders that are on active duty right now that will not even answer a text message from me. It's almost as if, you're retired, move out. Now, don't get me wrong. The vast majority of people, I spent a lot of time with the troops and everything, but I just sent a, a text message to a senior enlisted leader in the Army the other day, uh, a name that everybody would know, and the guy would, didn't even answer me back. I, I sent this to him like two weeks ago, and I thought, okay. So the point is, in order to continue to build relevancy with the current operating environment, we can't phase out everybody that came before us and say, that's not our way of thinking anymore. Because <clears throat> as you know very well, we had some NCOs and officers that were back to back to back to back combat tours that understood the profession of arms and, and the law of warfare. And those are the kind of people we need to leverage as we move forward uh, on, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, hey, how did you do business and everything like that? And don't get me wrong, I get invited by a lot of organizations. Uh, you know, tomorrow I get on a plane, I'll be at Fort Belvoir. Friday, I'm at Georgia Military College. And I'm constantly, uh, last week I was at Scott Air Force Base uh, with the Air Force, but I'm constantly out with troops and everything. So the point is, as we continue to grow and, and look at what the, the operation environment looks like now and what warfare in the future will look, we can't forget the lessons learned of actions in battle and how we got after victory doing things like that. Right. You know, I think that's super wise. I mean, I can think of like a couple of guys uh, at, at 317 that did like, you know, five combat tours back to back to back like that. And then yeah. um, later on, they, they, you know, things happened and, and the army just kind of like pushed them to, to a side like that because, you know, they were focused on the uh, the new shiny thing they were focused yeah. on. Um, so you you brought up uh, some pretty cool concepts like, like machine learning, AI, uh, multi-domain operations. Um, so how do you like so how if you're a if you're a junior enlisted soldier, what are some things, resources, tools, ideas, people to follow that um, can help educate them on what those things are and why are they relevant to uh, the battlefield today without losing the the basics of combat that is just a, a, a massive contest of wills. So. Yeah, the first thing, the first thing, especially when it comes to young troops, we want them to be focused on what their role and what their job is. The last thing you want 
and I used to say this during the surge in Iraq, you know, when I would, you know, just happen upon one of my patrols and guys pulling security, and I would just take a, take a knee to him in the dark, and I would hear him saying, well, if I was in charge of this MF, I'd be doing this and this and this. And I'd like, I'd say, look, specialist, I realize you have the toughest job on the planet, being a saw gunner and secretary of defense at the same time, but be the saw gunner, okay? So we want, young troops need to focus on what their role is and how they get after business and everything. But don't get me wrong. They need to know the why of what we're doing. And so I just think it, you know, a, a young troop can go to any army doctrine, you know, they can go to the operations manual. They can go to the leadership manual. They can go to any of this stuff to learn the direction the army is going on this stuff. They can ask for advice from their officers and NCOs within their, their uh, chain of command on, Hey, how do I get after this and everything? The last thing I would want is when someone is a machine gunner in an infantry platoon that they are worried about, you know, something happening in cyberspace that they can't control. So obviously they have to understand the, the fluidity of the battlefield and all the things that can affect them, but they need to be what they are, you know, and focus on that. And as they continue to grow, obviously their uh, aperture will broaden and they will understand more. I'm not saying we leave any service member in the dark, but the last thing we want is some E4 thinking that, you know, <laughs> they can tell the chief of staff of the army how to do business and everything, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. No, that, no, that, that, makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I like what you said that, um, like, you know, whatever level you were at, you just try, sought, sought to be the best at that, you know. Um, Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I've heard uh, other leaders just say, like, well, um, you know, this is going to be the last stop in the army. And then they, those are the guys that always end up at the top levels of the army because they just put a hundred percent on the field right then and there where they're at. So then yeah. I, I had a great leader, a great mentor of mine. He's still a mentor now. Uh, he was the 317 calf sergeant major before me, command sergeant major Roger Blackwood. Yeah. And uh, he used to say, I'm going to do this job until they tell me to do something different and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. And if, if they tell me to do something different where it's more responsibility or exiting the military, then I'll do it with honor. Right. No, I, I think that's probably, uh, especially the longer I, I do this job, the more I see people that, that do really well and that people really respect them both above and below. That's the yeah. attitude they have, that they're, they're just 100% wherever they're at. They don't care about career or anything else like that. They're just going to do their best. Absolutely. And I think that's where we run into problems, chaps, is that leaders are, they're not focused on what they're doing now. They got into this job now, and now they want to focus on what's next. No, focus on the now. If you focus on what you're doing now, your future will be taken care of, you know? Too many times they're like, okay, I made it to this position. What do I do now? Well, do your job. That's all you got to do. Do your job. Be the best that you can be, and the future will take care of itself. Right, right. Yeah. Or so earlier you talked about um, like running into um, you know being investigated whenever you were a first sergeant. I didn't even know that 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 had happened. Um, I, yeah. I knew about uh, that you were you were investigated as the CAC. So like you can you get into some of those and just kind of yeah. tell you, you know how what happened like and how did how did you get through it? So when I was a first sergeant, uh, it was uh, a major operation on Fort Bragg called Operation Purple Dragon, and this happened in. Uh, uh, I believe it was January of 98. And uh, I was a primary jump master on an aircraft. We were on a 30 ship line, meaning 30 
C-141s going on to Holland Drop Zone to jump. It was the biggest yeah, um, time airborne operation ever. Um, and uh, as we were exiting the jumpers out of the aircraft, uh, the first pass went out and uh, my safety NCO pulled the static lines back in and he recognized one of the static lines didn't have a deployment bag on the back of it that activates the parachute. It had been, you know, just like severed. And I looked at that and I was like, well, there's, there is a jumper out there now without any lift capability. And I hope to God that they pull their reserve parachute. Well, unfortunately the young man didn't pull his reserve parachute and he plummeted to the earth uh, 800 feet with no lift capability. And he died from, you know, blunt trauma of hitting the ground. But the minute I saw that static line, I told the Air Force loadmaster, I said, we need to close the doors, we need to break formation, and we need to head back to the departure airfield because there's a jumper out there without any lift capability, and there's going to be an investigation. So at the time, I didn't know that the soldier had perished, uh, but when we landed at Pope Air Force Base, came, ramp came down, there were investigators out there. So I knew then this kid didn't make it. So um, it, it was kind of backwards because... Normally, uh, the CID were the first ones to show up, you know, when, first of all, a 15-6 investigation should happen. And if there is evidence of a criminal act, then it gets turned over to CID. They kind of did it backwards. And so myself and my Jumpmaster team were under a lot of scrutiny, you know, for about two weeks. But in the end, we were exonerated because uh, the... Uh, Army Research Lab had determined that the kid's static line broke by him spinning out of the door, and uh, it was a catastrophic break of the static line that uh, caused his uh, caused it to break. And unfortunately, he did not activate his reserve parachute for whatever reason. But so then, as the Sea Act, you know, uh, you know, one thing I tried to do my whole career is be the same person. You know, I, I wanted to be genuine. I wanted to be authentic. I didn't want any smoke and mirrors associated with who I was. And every time I got ready to go into a new job, the selecting official, I would tell him, Hey, look, this is who I am. You know, I am not going to be afraid to say what's on my mind. Uh, I am going to be energetic. I'm going to be, you know, loud. I said, and, and then off duty, my wife and I like to go dancing. We like adult beverages. We like to karaoke and things like that. So if you don't have a problem with any of that, then I'm your 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 guy, you know. So anyways, uh, I'd been the SEAC uh, for about two years. And Secretary Mattis came in as my big boss. And he, he continued to talk about, we're not going to defeat our enemies. We're going to annihilate them. And... I knew that as the SEAC, you know, continued to get after that irreversible momentum and sending a message to the troops that will be positive, I knew that I needed to echo a message that the SECDEF was getting after. And so I, I went to Raqqa, Syria with our most elite Army special operators uh, from behind the fence at Fort Bragg, and uh, I was on a roof of a building with uh, all these elite special operators, and I'm watching uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces with these special operators as advisors kicking the crap out of ISIS. But every time there would be a lull in the fight, 
there would be a suicide vest bomber come out, sometimes a woman. There would be a Mad Max looking improvised explosive device vehicle, a suicide vehicle borne IED would come out and things like that. And I realized that, you know, ISIS was a very resilient enemy at this time. You know, they were well trained in infantry tactics. They were still a, a, a very lethal terrorist organization and insurgent force, but they were very resilient. And so finally, I just said, you know, hey, these jerks have two options. They can surrender or die. And if they surrender, we'll treat them humanely. We'll get them to their detainee holding facility cell, give them chow, you know, food, but also due process. But let there be no doubt if they don't surrender, then we're going to kill them with extreme prejudice, whether that means dropping bombs on them, shooting them in the face, or if need be, beating them to death with our entrenching tools. And so um, the sergeant major of the unit there told me, you know, you ought to put that in your update to General Dunford and Secretary Mattis. So I did it. So Mattis came back to me and said, hey, keep saying that. That is, that supports my narrative of annihilating the enemy. So I said it wherever I went. And it was meant to inspire the troops and uh, intimidate the enemy a little bit. And it was never an issue until uh, Christmas of 2017. I'm in Bagram, Afghanistan on a USO tour. I'm on stage with Chairman Dunford, myself, and Medal of Honor recipient, Captain Retired Flo Groberg is up there with me. And Flo and I are both holding e-tools. And I said the same thing, you know, that same motivational uh, message, and it blew the roof off. The troops were fired up and ready to get after it. But there was a reporter from the Washington Post in there, and he approached me afterwards, and he said, hey, you just gave the troops a green light to commit war crimes. I said, no, I didn't. I said, we teach soldiers, Marines, and battlefield airmen how to use non-standard methods to neutralize threats. And he says, well, I'm going to go public with this. I'm like, all right, go for it. Knock yourself out. But then I thought about it, and I was like, oh, where could this go? You know, because the last thing I wanted to do was bring any bad press on the chairman, the SECDEF, or anything like that, even though they were fully uh, on board with what I was saying. So I reached out to my public affairs guy, Rob Kotor, and uh, I said, what should we do here? This guy's going to go public. He said, let's beat him to the punch. So we developed a message based off of my uh, quote put a picture of me holding an entrenching tool and we put it all over social media and it went viral. I mean, viral to the point that uh, French media, German media, UK media, they all picked it up. More importantly, ISIS propaganda webpage picked it up and they started uh, criticizing me. So we started talking smack back to them and everything. But in the end, chaps, I received so much praise from the troops in the field that there was an inspirational message going around. But when I got back to Washington, D.C., the landscape started to change for me. It wasn't because of the chairman of SECDEF, but there were others that took offense to what I said. When I was talking about the realities of combat, there were people, members of Congress, that took offense to what I said. There were others in the media that took offense to what I said. I even had a three-star uh, admiral walk into my office one day and tell me, you need to retract this message because enlisted people are meant to be seen and not heard. And I was like, "What, <laughs> Admiral, we can all be some fighting MFers in here. And I'd recommend you just leave, you know, 
But in the end, I was not going to walk it back what I said. But the landscape started to change. And then all of a sudden, people that were around me started to change. Not my immediate staff, the folks that were traveling with me all the time. I had some great NCOs uh, from the Army, from the Marine Corps, and even, you know, a senior chief from the Navy and everything. Um, but it was a fellow E-9 in particular. And I think he was assisted by some other um, general officers. Um, I, but he started, uh, he was a mediocre performer that I was trying to up his game so that he could, I mean, when you're, you're operating on that level, you can't be a guy worried about your feelings. You can't be a guy worried about uh, personal rewards and everything. We have a job to do every day and it's to give best military advice to the chairman and sector, but more importantly, you know, deliver the why to the troops on a global scale. So anyways, uh, in September of that year, of 2018, I was getting ready to get on a trip and I got a call uh, that I needed to come to the Pentagon and see the vice director of the joint staff, an Air Force two-star. And I said, why? I said, I'm getting ready to go meet the chairman at Andrews Air Force Base, get on the C-40 and head to Europe. And they said, well, we understand that, but you need to come in. So I walk in, I drive to the Pentagon, walk into the vice director's office. There's an Air Force two-star. There's an Air Force colonel, public affairs guy, and there's an Air Force 06 lawyer. And they told me, you are suspended of your duties as the SEAC pending an investigation. And I said, what am I under investigation for? They said, we can't tell you. And then the PAO guy says to me, but we're going to put out a message across the DOD website and across social media that you are suspended, letting the force know you're suspended. And I thought to myself, chaps, I don't even know what I'm under investigation for, but we're going to tell the whole world that Troxel is suspended pending an investigation. And you know the deal. When something like that happens, automatically it's because you cheated on your wife or you did something wrong with money or you drove drunk or something like that. And so, you know, I went home and told my wife and we were just, we were numb. And, uh, and then I found out later on, I was, it was hostile and toxic leadership. Uh, it was, uh, and then all kinds of other things. Like I had done unnecessary travel then my wife had done unnecessary travel and everything. So I was suspended for six months. And, you know, I just wrote a memoir, you know, uh, my book, and I got it right here, yeah. um, Surrender or Die. But uh, I talk about, I dedicate a whole chapter to this, the suspension. And this goes back to being a champion and not a victim. And the minute I found out what I was under investigation for, and I knew a lot of it was BS, and that somebody was weaponizing the, I, the DOD IG and the Army IG to cause me personal and professional harm. I told General Dunford, I said, there's only two ways I'm leaving. You either reinstate me or you fire me and force me to retire. I ain't quitting. And so I couldn't go in my office. I couldn't talk to my staff. Couldn't talk to any of my previous staff. I was relegated to a little cubicle, uh, basically in the middle of the Pentagon and basically a closet. And for six months, I was there. I read 27 books, you know, and I couldn't do anything that resembled that I was performing duties as the SEAC. But what I loved about it, because of all of the things I had done, the media response was muted. And the level of support I got from General Dunford constantly coming down and talking to me, Secretary Mattis constantly sending me a message, 
Dave Goldfein, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, Todd Walters, Usurer Commander, all of these senior people, Jack Tilly, retired Sergeant Major of the Army, they all came down and were checking on me. And, and more importantly, the troops were reaching out to me. It even got to a point, chaps, that somebody on Facebook created a page called hashtag free three. So I was the third SEAC. So it was free three and they started selling apparel and everything. But anyways, so I stuck it out. And in the end, I mean, they went through me. The IG went through me with a fine tooth comb. I had to produce my coin log. I mean, at that level, they go through everything. And out of, out of the total of six major charges and 36 subcharges, everything was dismissed except two minor charges where I had misused my staff by sending people to the store and paying for their chow and everything, but having them get me something. And then, you know, we have all these beaver fit gym lockers all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I did a video in front of one of these lockers and I had implied an endorsement to a non-federal entity. So I said, okay, if I did that, then I'm guilty. All right. And so anyways, General Dunford brought me in. He gave me a localized uh, GOMAR, basically a counseling statement, and, uh, and it got destroyed when he left, and he put me back to work. And so um, I got back doing the same things I was before. I didn't modify my leadership style, but I was more cognizant of the people around me now because there were people looking through professional jealousy to do personal and professional harm to me. Right. And uh, so the lesson I learned through all of that is never stop being who you are as a leader and never try to change based off of something like that, because then you would be inauthentic, you know, you wouldn't be genuine. And so, uh, but I was more, but be more cognizant of the people around you because chaplain, you know, this, there are people out there that live in this victimhood mentality that are just chomping at the bit to leverage the IG or EO or somebody like that to cause personal and professional harm and yet they lack the intestinal fortitude to even go see the person that they have a problem with and say, we have a problem. And for the person that filed a complaint against me, never once would they come into my office and say, hey, we've got a problem or I don't like what you're doing or anything like that. The whole time, this person and persons schemed to leverage the IG to eliminate me. And in the end, it backfired on them. And, uh, you know, I came out of it okay. Um, and uh, was able to finish out my last year as the SEAC and retire with honor. And to the to the point of the impact that you have, so there was a, there is a SEAC for CZ Colon Lopez is the SEAC. He replaced me in December in 2019. But I had a last conference that week before I retired. I had every service senior enlisted, every combatant command senior enlisted. But more importantly, chaps, I had 24 foreign nation SEACs that were in attendance at my retirement ceremony. That shows you the impact that we had made over four years. So that was what it was all about. There were some trying times, but my message to anybody going through adversity like that is what I said at the beginning, be a champion. Don't be a victim to it. Continue to focus on who you are and what you are. And in the end, uh, if it doesn't work out your way, then you know, accept it with honor and move on. Amen to that. I'll tell you um, two thoughts I had on that. I um, I remember whenever the uh, the Etul thing came up. Yeah. And so uh, I think it was a uh, it was Tony Kuklo was was the PAO or I just remember him him talking on CNN and, and uh, he said something to the effect of like 
well, he he didn't really mean that. And I was like, man, I'm gonna tell you right now, that was my sergeant major. He's a legend in 317, and he absolutely meant that. You know, like, and I and I found it personally motivating. I was just like, yeah, man, keep you know keep doing that. So, uh, yeah, never apologize for that statement at all. Absolutely, and right. I never have, and I never will for right. for anything that I've done as a leader. Yeah, have I made mistakes? Yes. Could I, you know, choose to right some wrongs as a leader? Yes, but uh, I am not going to uh, walk back talking about the realities of combat and what we're going to do to anybody that threatens our freedom. Absolutely. Well, yeah. So I know we're getting short on time. Uh, uh, why don't you tell us about uh, eTool Nation and, and your book? Yeah. So once I got reinstated, you know, and once I started ma making this message, I was signing entrenching tools all over the world. I mean, people are sending them to me. They still do to this day. I think we're up to 4,100 that I've signed and everything. So I kind of turned the eTool Nation into uh, one. There's a Facebook page, eTool Nation. It's about like-minded people that are about living a warrior ethos and are continuing to be enablers to the current force, even though they might be in uniform and not agitators. But I've turned it into my nonprofit, too, where my wife and I will donate money uh, to veteran organizations or, or support organizations for the military, you know, and, and, and leverage and donate money to it and everything. Um, and then, you know, as I retired, people keep, kept asking me, man, you need to write a book. You need to write a book, man, with everything you've been through and everything you've done and all the combat and everything, you need to write a book. And I never really knew how to get after it until I met a gentleman on a flight coming back from Tampa to Seattle. And uh, he introduced me to an author coach who is my author coach now, Ann McIndoo. And she took an idea and a concept out of my head, turned it into basically a manuscript grid, into a transcript, into a manuscript to now, you know, I am a published author right. of my memoir, Surrender or Die, Reflections of a Combat Leader. And I talk about my career. I talk about my growing up uh, back in Iowa and then I talk about combat. I talk about the invisible wounds of war. I talk about eTool Nation. I talk about my phrase PME hard, physically, mentally, and emotionally hard. And then uh, obviously the suspension. I talk leadership. And then finally, I talk about family. And so uh, people can find it on Amazon. Uh, we are the number one book, new, new release in Iraq and Afghan war history. So they can get it on Amazon. And, uh, you know, uh, it's... Uh, you know, I did it not so much to make money off a of chaplain. I did it as a legacy item for my grandchildren, right. their children and their grandchildren. Because as you know, you know, you might be able to donate uh, apparel and stuff, but sooner or later that stuff or a car or something, but sooner that's later that stuff wears out. A book is something that will go on for a long time. And so it's a legacy item to my family. And that's why I did it. Right. Yeah, no, I've, I've uh, been thumbing through it. I knew that you had written a chapter on that um, uh, on, on the suspension. I thought it, I thought it was it was heroic that, that you're able uh, to sit down there and, and do that. They're like, hey, look, this is what's hard, and this is what what I went through, and and this is uh, you know what it meant to me and what it can mean for you. So I, uh, so thank you for doing that. And so I know, uh, yeah, Mattis was was real big on uh, 
uh, on reading, and they even said said to the to the effect of like we, we should always uh, thank the the warriors that went b- before us that took the time to write down their experience so we don't have to relive them. Uh, you know, and absolutely. Learn them. Yeah, so I think it's amazing that you did that. Uh, now I'll tell you, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up uh, sign and e tools. We had to, uh, once I realized that you're going to be on the podcast, uh, we had talked about like, yeah, we got to get you out at, at one of our ranges or something to come sign e tools and stuff, and uh, that wasn't even my idea. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm all in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Sergeant Major John Wayne Troxel with the coolest name in the entire Army, even if you are <laughs> retired. Uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, I will email you, let you know when, when it'll post. All right, Chaplain, thank you so much for what you do. And uh, thanks to the troops out there for everything they do. We are the greatest military on the planet and the number one partner for global peace and security on planet Earth. So thanks a lot. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. You can find more of our content on Instagram at Cascade Rifles or on Substack in the show notes.